It's Friday, May 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Washington is swirling with UFO chatter right now, as many eagerly await an intelligence report due sometime next month. Top senators, Pentagon insiders, and former CIA directors have all been weighing in on the subject. But that hasn't always been the case. UFO talk usually got you in trouble or got you strange looks. Michael Rosenwald, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how UFO sightings went from jokes to national security concern. Next, for all those that are out traveling this Memorial Day weekend, get ready for high costs and lots of people. As the economy continues to rebound from the pandemic, we're seeing vacations get more expensive with rising airfare and hotel rates. The price of gas is even making road trips more expensive too. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC, joins us for why costs are quickly going up. Finally, a new treatment known as optogenetic therapy has given a blind man some of his vision back. Light-activated proteins were inserted into eye nerve cells and paired with special goggles that emit flashes of amber-hued light. This combination allowed the man with a degenerative eye disease to see and count some objects when he could previously only detect some light. Tina Hessman Say, senior writer at Science News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We have things flying over military installations, over military exercises, and other places, and we don't know what it is. It isn't ours. It isn't anything that's registered with the FAA, and in many cases exhibits attributes of things we've never seen technology, the kinds of technology we haven't seen before, or at least that's what it seems like. Joining us now is Michael Rosenwald, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. UFOs in the news again. I always love stories about UFOs and aliens, but it's getting a lot of hype right now, especially in Washington, before people kept quiet about things like this, you know, leave it to the movies and all that stuff. But we've been hearing a lot about this upcoming report, supposed to be coming out in June. Who knows if it'll get delayed, but it's supposed to detail everything that the Pentagon knows about UFOs. And you wrote an article just kind of talking about the trajectory of how this conversation is going and how more people are buzzing about it, intelligence officials, people in the Pentagon. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with the conversation on UFOs. A lot of this really dates back to sort of the mid-1990s. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid is invited by a friend to go to this academic conference on UFOs. And he's, he's intrigued. He's from Nevada. That's where Area 51 is. And he keeps an interest in this going for several years. And then another friend approaches him who has a real healthy interest in UFOs. And he's got a ranch in Utah, apparently, where lots of weird paranormal things happen. And he apparently gets a letter from some kind of intelligence official saying, hey, we want to check out your ranch. And then Reed finally says, you know, we should do something on this. And so he calls in some of his colleagues to a secure classified room at the Capitol And he says, you know, he wants to get some money appropriated to the Pentagon so they can study this. And he gets $22 million, which is, you know, obviously a drop in the bucket when it comes to Pentagon funding. But they establish this group internally to look at it. And they begin collecting a series of reports from military pilots about these strange objects that they are seeing, which, you know, in the sky and and on radar, which have a lot more capability than they have. And 
eventually, a few years ago, a few of these videos leak out. The Pentagon confirms them and more and more people start to get interested in this. And, and this draws the attention of former CIA directors who come out and publicly say, hey, we don't know what this stuff is. It's weird. We've got to figure out what it is. <laughs> right. And then, incredibly, as part of uh, former President Trump's pandemic relief package and appropriations bill, the Senate Intelligence Committee, led by Democrat Mark Warner from Virginia, gets a provision in there basically saying that the director of national intelligence needs to coordinate with the Pentagon and release a report in 180 days, which is due next month, detailing everything, every intelligence agency, right down to the FBI, detailing what they have on these unidentified flying objects. And from Mark Warner and, and from Marco Rubio, the, the vice chair of this committee, they have couched this in national security terms. It's like, hey, there are these things flying around in the sky that are doing these incredible things. We don't know what the heck they are. What if it's Russia? What if it's China? What if it really is something right. extraterrestrial? Everybody's pinning this now into a national security thing. What if it is another uh, country with some new technology? And so this is where the conversation is going. So I know people get hyped up about UFOs and aliens, but that's probably not what we're going to be hearing about when this report eventually comes out. We're going to be hearing about national security implications with all of this. Yeah, that's true. Though some former CIA directors have said some really eyebrow-raising things. John <laughs> Brennan, <laughs> John Brennan, who was a very obviously well-respected uh, intelligent career intelligence official and ran the CIA, he says that we shouldn't just assume that we're living here in this world, whatever this world is, alone. Maybe there is something out there that needs to be explained. Yeah, I think one of his so quotes, yeah, I think crazy. in one of his it's, quotes, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's amazing. <laughs> it is. And, and that's where people's heads start swirling. It's a bit presumptuous and arrogant for us to believe that there's no other form of life anywhere in the universe. And he says some of this stuff that we're looking at could come from a different form of life. You know, that right there, obviously, he's uh, privy to knowledge that we don't have. And that really starts sending people's heads spinning with all of this stuff. It really does. And, and it's. It's interesting that we've had this pop cultural thing for so long, but in other countries, and I'm, and I'm hearing from many people in other countries today, these things aren't treated, you know, as a political ticket to the loony bin, as, as I called it. They're taken seriously in, in many other countries in ways that we haven't been taking it seriously. There's not just UFO settings in the United States. These, these settings are everywhere. And, and, um, and there are things that can't be explained, you know, but other countries treat it in a, in a different way. Are we seeing these types of reports from uh, military personnel in other countries? Because if it was just happening here, then maybe that leads more to saying it could be another country infiltrating our airspace. But if it's happening everywhere, then maybe something larger could be at play. The UK has had similar UFO task forces. There's been other countries that have looked into it. South America, people are hoping that as, as part of this report that is supposed to come out from the government, that there will also be references to perhaps other intelligence gathered between friendly countries on this topic. So, you know, there's a lot of hope behind this, this report that's supposed to come out. And one of those things is what do other countries know and what have they shared with our intelligence community? Michael Rosenwald, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. I mean, you have legal departments and compliance that are dictating a lot of these 
policies and they don't want to send anyone out too early or, or risk a lawsuit. So if you can travel in the fall or maybe outside of the peak season, I would go for it. Joining us now is Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Memorial Day weekend is here and it's time to talk about travel. I don't want to bust anybody's bubble, but it's going to be busy <laughs> wherever you're going. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of other people out there. You know, it's kind of this double-edged sword. We're recovering from the pandemic, and this is exactly what we want. We want people to start traveling again, start visiting other locations, domestic travels, leisure travel, spending that money. We want that. But on the other side of things, we've been locked up away for so long. It's tough to get out in a lot of crowded places with a lot of people. So, Leslie, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing out there. We're seeing rising airfares and hotel rates as well. I think we got a little bit used to those bargain fares we were seeing, and many of us, most of us, were not booking them last year and even into the beginning of 2021. Then all of a sudden, a bunch of people in America did get vaccinated and encouraged this, this huge uptick in demand for travel. People have been closed up in their homes for the better part of 15 months, and they're ready to go out and travel. Whether you're vaccinated or not, uh, attractions are starting to open up. You have Disneyland that opens very recently. And other places, restaurants are opening in cities. And even in New York, we're starting to see things return a little bit more to normal. Yeah, you know, it's not just the airfare as well. Road trips, the cost of gas is going up. And for a time during the pandemic, that's what a lot of people resorted to. Let's do a quick road trip, something just to get out of the house. And even gas prices are going up. So all around, uh, you know, it's kind of funny, too, because... You know, some of these increases and everything, you know, they're not at pre-pandemic levels just yet. They're getting towards it. But even still, is just kind of coming out of this year where we're looking at these prices and just saying, man, that's expensive already. I think we got used to those really cheap prices during the pandemic. And you mentioned road trips. We've seen gasoline prices, national averages, the highest that we've seen since 2014. So it was this sort of alternative during the pandemic. Okay, I'm going to go out and avoid other people. I don't feel like going to an airport. I don't feel safe or, you know, whatever the reason might be. But a lot of other people had a similar idea. Of course, we're all getting out of our houses and, and driving up demands for gasoline. What we're seeing in airports, I think travelers can expect a lot of full flights. Airlines do not have the capacity that they had in 2019. They retired a lot of aircraft. A lot of their own employees retired or left the company. So they're not operating the same number of flights that they used to. But what they are all doing is trying to focus on this domestic U.S leisure demands. And that's where everybody is traveling. And that's where we're seeing some of the fares. A lot of the executives are starting to say they're at or near 2019 levels. So the chances of getting a, a really good bargain are pretty much fading as we speak. <laughs> Business and international travel hasn't ramped up just yet. That's still going to take a little bit more time. And that's kind of what helps offset these lower fares for, for all the regular flights, basically. So until those pick up, we'll be in this kind of uh, mode as well. That's helping the consumer somewhat, or vacationer, I should say, in the near term, because it will keep a lid on prices. You know, you don't have those business travelers during the middle of the week. If you as a vacationer can travel in the middle of the week and take those seats at a better price, take it. And then also, if you have a chance to travel in the off season, the airlines are hopeful that business travel, which is already starting to come back, will come back in earnest maybe in the fall. Kids are back in school and more people are vaccinated and companies start to loosen up their travel restrictions for their own people and maybe offices open up to receive visitors. But it's not clear how quickly that's going to happen. I mean, you have legal departments and compliance that are dictating a lot of these 
policies and they don't want to send anyone out too early or, or risk a lawsuit. So if you can travel in the fall or maybe outside of the peak season, I would go for it. You made mention in your article that a lot of airlines are reinstating strict rules that they had on uh, basic economy flights. What were those rules? What's changing there? So one thing that happened during the pandemic is that airlines started to lift or they have lifted change fees and the fees that everybody hates, $250 or more sometimes to change your flight. And everybody knows the frustration of even if you have like a family of four and you need to change for an emergency or something along those lines, or maybe you really like your destination, you want to stay a little bit longer, come back sooner for whatever reason. It's very costly. And airlines were desperate to get people on board last year. So they all, Delta, American and United, lifted change fees, including for international flights. Great news for consumers, but it doesn't apply to the cheapest tickets, which is called basic economy. They're the most restrictive. And one of the pillars of that for most airlines is that they don't allow change fees. So those fares exist and they'll be in buckets on the website when you book your flight on the airline's website. They're there and executives are not shy about this, so that you book the next highest. That will give you a little bit more flexibility that will allow you to bring for certain airlines a carry-on bag on board, let's say not board last. It comes with a seat assignment for what that's worth for you. So it's not free changes for all. Some airlines, like Southwest, for example, they haven't had change fees, so it wasn't much of a change for them. But for the major airlines, they are keeping that, but it is for standard economy tickets. Leslie Josephs, Airline reporter at CNBC, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So what these researchers have done is taken a gene that will produce a light-sensitive protein, and they put them in these other nerve cells that are still there in the retina. And so now those nerve cells can respond to light. Joining us now is Tina Hessman Say, senior writer at Science News. Thanks for joining us, Tina. Well, thank you for having me. I want to talk about a really interesting story. They were doing gene-based therapy on a French man, and they were able to partially restore his vision. They're using these light-activated proteins. They insert them in his eye nerve cells. He has to use special goggles with this but they were able to uh, get him to see a couple of things. I think he was able to uh, see and count objects, maybe see the outlines of a pedestrian crosswalk. All very good for him, obviously. So, Tina, help us walk through some of the story. What are we seeing with this gene-based therapy? So this is a type of therapy that's called optogenetic therapy. It's a little different from some of the gene therapies you might have heard about before, which replace a faulty copy of a gene with a healthy copy. And it's also different from gene editing, which goes in and fixes a particular mutation. So those types of therapy are good for people who still have some of the cells in their retina that collect the light. Those are, you've heard probably rod and cone cells. They're also called photoreceptors. So those cells die in people with these degenerative eye diseases, including the one that this man has. And when they die, you lose your vision. But there are still other nerve cells in the retina that are still alive and still capable of working, but they're just not getting signals. So what these researchers have done 
is taking a gene that will produce a light-sensitive protein, and they put them in these other nerve cells that are still there in the retina. And so now those nerve cells can respond to light. The way things work in the eye, they're layered. So with this gene therapy, they're targeting the far back of the eye, which is sending those signals to the brain. So how those cells that they put these this light-sensitive gene into, they're called ganglion cells. And they're sort of the last line of the retina before you send off the signals about what you're seeing to the brain. So normally, they would get varying signals from the other layers in the retina, and they would fire off in pulses. So the ganglion cell doesn't know what to do with a constant source of light. So that's why you have to send pulses to it, because it responds to change in light levels. They've done this type of optogenetic therapy before with different light sources. It used to be more of like a blue light source, but uh, I guess it was very straining for a lot of people. So with this one, they use more of an amber light source, and that's why they use the goggles uh, to put that light source in there as well. So just a lot of interesting things and modifications that they had to do just to get him to be able to see a little bit. So these goggles actually take advantage of a lot of technology that's been developed for cameras, for instance, setting light levels, because your eye can respond to a huge range of light levels from the dimmest starlight to the brightest sunny day at the beach. But these proteins that are now responding to light only respond to a very narrow window. And so the goggles have to, like, take all these different light levels and put it into that narrow band that these proteins respond to. How optimistic are doctors for the future? And the man himself, has he had any reaction to being able to pick out certain things now? You know, the doctors are cautiously optimistic. This is one person They have done this with, I think they said, nine other people so far in this clinical trial. And this man got the lowest dose of these uh, light-activated proteins that they felt would be workable. And so other people in the trial are getting higher doses, so they may have better responses. But with COVID, it was very difficult for them to come into the lab to do the testing and training that they needed to do because this is not like a therapy that you can just go in, have them shoot something into your eye, and then you can see. It takes months, actually, for the proteins to be made, and then it takes a while to train the brain to make sense of what you're seeing because there are very few cells that contain these proteins and they're getting it in a different information sense than they normally would when you see. So it takes a while for the brain to figure all of that out. Tina Hessman Say, senior writer at Science News. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.